You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to, in that, in that same vein, in following with that theme of experiencing renewal in the midst of even difficult circumstances, I want us to, in some sense, skim for the first little bit here and As we pick up where we've left off in the story of renewal in Nehemiah, we'll be in chapter 11 and 12. Now, this will be the fourth and final long list of names. And I want to, even this morning, spend more time talking about that list maybe than we have in the past, but still to skim through it, mostly because I don't want to dishonor these beautiful Hebrew names that I'm certain I would just simply butcher. And, uh, and so in that sense, I want us to, to we're going we're gonna to kind of skim through and make some observations from not only all of chapter 11, but even the first, you'll see 26 verses of chapter 12. And then what follows of the list of people is the way that they responded in praise and dedication and sacrifice in light of all that God had been doing. And so as a recap, you'll remember the the temple, or excuse me, the, the, the temple and the altar was rebuilt in the story of Ezra, and in the story of Nehemiah, the walls are being rebuilt. That is, they're, they're, God is allowing them to be restored, even under the rule of the Persian foreign pagan king. And yet, the, the walls, in some sense, were actually finished multiple chapters ago. In fact, it was in the sixth chapter that the walls were completed. And yet, the last several chapters we've been walking through since the completion of the walls are are a reflection of how God not only restores these physical realities for these people to be literally a city walled off and set apart from the world, but then how they're to be a people set apart. And so we saw that they rejoice, they they ruminate on God's deliverance even through the wilderness and, and start to start to restore themselves in feasting and celebrating God's deliverance. And then they begin to realize as they rehearse God's story of grace that they're called to experience grace through confession as they rehearse the repetitive nature of sin and and the repetitive nature of God's grace. And then we saw last week as they make public commitments, a public promise. In light of all that God has done, then I can trust that God will faithfully carry me through and I can commit to living in light of that to where uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12 are the, let's see, the outworking of that commitment. So as we skim through chapter 11, an outworking and quite literally a list of the people who began to live out this promise, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then, beginning in verse 3, these are the, and then there's categories of chiefs, sons of Benjamin, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, overseers, people that lived outside, right, in the suburbs, right? Begin verse 1 of chapter 12. These are the priests now in the, the lineage of these priests and Levites who came up with the first wave of people under Zerubbabel, and then the Levites. And then in the, in the days of Joachim, it says, here's another list of priests and heads of fathers' houses. And, and then it gives another list of the Levites, a lineage, if you will, of the leaders that were a part of this movement of renewal that started in the beginning of Ezra. All the way to verse 27, where as, they, as the completion of this list concludes, this is what Nehemiah tells us, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now Nehemiah speaks from the first person. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs 
that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Mushulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mathaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maaseiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Elioenai, excuse me, Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Azer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. And then the first three verses of the next chapter included in this section. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated themselves, separated, excuse me, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. May God have blessing, understanding, and even encouragement to the reading of his word. I want to convince you this morning, as we have been reflecting upon how we might experience renewal how we might experience a repair, a restoration of the places in your life and mine that need it. That we begin to get a picture, along with the last few chapters, of what that renewal will look like. You'll remember, renewal looks like celebration of all that God has done in the past. We saw this. And therefore, renewal begins to look like confession, admitting that we need and experience God's grace. And then renewal includes publicly declaring, I will be this that God has made me to be. And so in this section, we get a picture of what dedication looks like through a list of people who publicly made this commitment and began to live it out, and then an explanation of what happened on that day when they celebrated, in many ways, the climax, not only of this section, but of the entirety of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I want to warn you, like Ezra, you will find an anti-climax in the next week is in some sense an unhappy ending of Nehemiah, and it leaves us longing 
for something more. And so before we begin to think about the climax and the ultimate joy that we find in this story of renewal through Ezra and Nehemiah in this section, and before we begin to see kind of a, an anti-climax as the book comes to an end next week, I want to encourage you that the life of faith regularly includes lamenting how things are not quite what we expected them to be. In fact, that longing for something more that you'll have at the, you had at the end of Ezra, and you'll have again at the end of Nehemiah, and even their contemporaries of Haggai, Zechariah, we saw this last week in Malachi, is meant to be an invitation for what many Christians celebrate this time of year. That is the season of Advent, the celebration of God's coming to be with us, an arrival of renewal. To begin to contemplate that is to lament, is to admit how much we need someone to come in and enter the story and make things new, is to admit that things are not like they, were, like they ought to be. If you think about it, it's a word of honor to say to someone, things have been terrible while you were gone. Right? Even that lament is a way of saying how much you appreciate and care for this person, as if to say, like, without you, things just weren't like they should be. And so also the life of faith includes acknowledging that apart from God, things are not as they should be. And Advent is simply a season where we acknowledge our longing and yet celebrate Christ's coming. So in this penultimate chapter and section of the book, that in many ways will end kind of on a downer next week, leaving us longing for more, I believe, just like the book of Malachi was for us last year, an invitation to celebrate Christmas rightly, that Christ has come in all the places where things are not what we wish they would be. Now, what does that renewal look like? Renewed people then, longing for renewal and experiencing renewal, are people who are counted as those set apart for praise. Here are the two parts of what we just read. The first part, significant part, counting. This is the fourth list, significant list I would say. And so while we've kind of skimmed through, I want to draw a couple of conclusions as we kind of skim through this list this morning to consider, as, as we see here, how God counts or how had the story of Ezra and Nehemiah counts those who are experiencing renewal, who are experiencing restoration. And then realizing that renewed people aren't just counted on a list here, but they're counted on a list of people who dedicate themselves to something. They dedicate, you saw here, through multiple things, through singing, through praise, through sacrifice, through serving, through ministering, and through giving and generosity setting themselves apart from the world. So, the significance of this list, I think, can be seen in the ways that certain words recur. They show up quite a bit. And it begins, if you saw, we just read this, at the beginning of chapter 11. Let's go back there. Before the list begins, it gives us a rundown of what this list will be. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So, I shared this with you before, but even in a season in the life of our church, as we begin to call out and acknowledge leaders that God is raising up in our midst, Nehemiah serves as a powerful template for what leadership in the people of God look like. And mind you, it looks very different than what leadership in the world looks like. But often the language of Ezra and Nehemiah is the language of what leaders in movements of renewal will look like. We saw last week, publicly leading through commitment. I will do this. Not perfectly, not because I am somehow gifted, but because of what God has done, then I can trust that he will use people to do it again. So it says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And then the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. So if I were to draw your attention to a couple of things that are incredibly important, is that, you know, here's, here's, here's how, I, how I see some of this list kind of maybe jumping out as encouragement and marks for us to experience renewal as well. And it's like this. This long list, first and foremost, reminds us that we are known and acknowledged by God. People matter to God. And so the significance in this list, in many ways, is a significance of the unnamed and the ordinary. One of the greatest temptations for us 
is to believe. And, and this is, we're kind of in this shape, like this is the shape of our culture as well. Uh, because we, we prize celebrity and significance, we, we, we then feel like we've wasted away because we think we are not significant. And I shared this with you prophetically, I guess, a few weeks ago. It's not really prophetic if it always happens, but I shared this with you. Many, many of the, like, the public acts of violence are a way of saying, I would rather be remembered for something awful than to be forgotten. I'd rather be notorious and hated than ignored. And friend, we have in this story of renewal something the world needs to hear. You matter to God. You. We talked about this even in our gospel community this last week. I think it's easier for us to, to, to maybe acknowledge, oh yeah, that people totally matter to God. People, yeah, people, people are loved by God. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. You. 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 You, you, you get it? You, you, you matter to God. Your presence in this place matters to God. The fact that you're here is evidence you matter to God. That he would call us out of the world into this place in some symbolic way to say, we matter. God cares about us. God loves us. And I know the world will say, why would, why would the God of the universe care about you? That's absurd. Exactly. That's it. That's why we sing and praise, because we are counted by God. We are known by God. And the things in your life that seem insignificant, that are unnamed by most people, they're not dramatic, right? They're not awesome or amazing by the world's standard. They're the things that are evidence of renewal and evidence that we are loved and counted by God among those who are being reconciled and restored. And so, if you were to ask, what does a movement of renewal look like? Here's maybe one thing as a side note. I'll say it this way. Movements of renewal tithe people. Did you catch that? The leaders of the people and the rest of the people, they cast lots to bring one out of ten. As a side note here, this is something I've, I've shared with you as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, but even as a church, I warn you, don't get too comfortable. I know many of you are like, man, I just want to find a church that I can belong to and be comfortable in. Man, one of, the, one of, the, one of my main jobs is to comfort you and your affliction and also to afflict you in your comfort. And, and the purpose of the church is to be set aside and then sent out. And so here's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's going to make you cry and weep because that's exactly how it's supposed to look. But when it comes to our church multiplying disciples, we don't only focus on one another. But if you're in this room and you're not a believer, I hope it's because someone invited you because they wanted you to hear good news and be encouraged. And I hope I have good news to encourage you with. But by nature, because of what God has done for us, our sights are then turned outward and we sacrifice ourselves for the world. Look at the language. They're set aside to simply just populate Jerusalem. And they sent out people to live as a witness. So here's what this looks like. In our church, it means that sometimes, like we have friends in this room, praise God, we're going to care for one another. But sometimes, and man, this happens, I think, I hope on a regular basis, sometimes we ignore our friends to love the stranger. Sometimes we leave the comfort to meet those who need it. As a gospel community, maybe for you, like we intentionally part ways. Right? We could just look and say, hey man, isn't this great? Let's, let's just, hey, let's just get here on Sunday and let's just keep this beautiful thing that Jesus has done for us a secret. Don't let anyone know about it. We can't do that. Instead, we intentionally part ways and we say, no, you must go. What you've been given is too great to keep a secret. And so we say what we call them gospel goodbyes, when gospel communities multiply. When we know it would be better and more comfortable to just hang out together, we say, no, you're going to go. You're going to go be for the world what God has been for you and one another in this setting. And here's, here's the, even the bigger one. We want to see churches planted. We want to see what God's doing in this room and in buildings like this around the city multiplied. And so, I, man, one of the questions people ask about church planting is like, you know, well, aren't there lots of churches in the city already? Maybe, I don't know. That's not the question I really care about. Aren't there lots of people who need to hear the gospel in the city? And as long as the answer to the latter is yes, then it's our job to, did you catch this? Like, cast lots. I don't, 
don't know how we would do that, right? I mean, that, that'd, be a, that'd be a weird roulette wheel to have in our church, right? Like, oh, you're going to get to go plant a church, right? You get to go start a gospel community. I know some of you probably felt that way, right? Like, okay, yeah, okay, no, right? But think of it as like there were 10 available and willing and one who, at least one who were called out. And so I just want to, I want to paint this as a very practical way to think of movements of renewal multiply. And we want to be that and do that. And so I, I share this regularly. If you find yourself thinking like, you know, there are no good churches in our city, right? Maybe that's you. There are no good churches. Even now, you're like, Bruh! including this one, right? There are no faithful good churches in the city. There's two possible options, okay? 90% chance you need to repent and submit. 90% chance. You're just arrogant, foolhardy. You think you know better than everyone else. 90% chance of that. 10% chance you might be right and God's calling you to plant a church. And so if you find yourself going like, this church doesn't do all the things that I think the Bible tells us to do, 90% chance you need to submit, okay? 10% chance you're right, and God's calling you. We're casting lots, right? And guess what? We'll equip you to send you to be all that God's called you to be. Movements of renewal multiply. They send out people. They let go of people to see, see the world populated, as we see here, with people who have been transformed by God's grace. One out of ten, they do that. But what do they do? I think there are six things. One commentarian helped me see this. I, I, I kind of just went right over it, but there, there are at least six things that recur multiple times. What does a movement of renewal look like in this list? Now, this is present in many ways and the other three lists that we've kind of skimmed over, but let me just draw your attention to them. You'll see one of the main things that they do there, and it seems like, it may seem like something you would overlook. It says they live there 11 times, beginning with the casting of lots, 11 times the people who lead and experience renewal live somewhere. Now, that seems like an obvious thing to say, right? Of course, you can't not live somewhere, but think of it this way, is that Renewal results in faithful presence and purpose. So 11 different times, it, may, it called attention to these people lived there. And so here's, here's simply what I would ask, right? Do you live where you live on purpose? And if so, what is the purpose? Do you currently live in this city or somewhere? Do you live there on purpose? And if so, what's the purpose? Because I want to push on you this. Their purpose for living was to begin to be a remnant of people that loved and served and glorified God in the midst of a world that glorified other things. And they chose to be that remnant. And this is a picture of what the church is to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say that because the purpose you live where you live might just fit into simply looking like the rest of the world. I'll give you just a quick example. There are at least two reasons to live in a place that no one will ask you any questions, right? If you just said, why do you live in Sioux Falls, right? Here's a two, two, two reasons. Because of work. And I share this with you. It's a beautiful city to live in, uh, low unemployment, tons of jobs. Many of you are here because of work. Here's the problem with that. Ultimately, the culture of our city is is kind of built around this, this belief that the good life comes from work. Like, joy comes from your career and your work, right? But in this world, if you said, hey, I live here because of my job, no one would, no one would think that's weird. Like, of course you do. So do I, right? But just notice, it, it, it can point to something that, like, true meaning, true eternal happiness, the good life comes from our job or career. Here's the second reason that no one will question. Family. Why do you live here? Well, I live here because of family, right? This is where my family's from, or this is... Right? Again, just hear, 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 the, hear the problem with that. It tells us that the good life is in our biological family. The good life is in your biological family. And that's a problem because most of you know your family, right? And most of you are like, oh, thank God, that's not. Like, right? I always I was, I was get a kick like, when people say the phrase dysfunctional family. That's a redundancy. Anyone, who, anyone who's read the Old Testament knows the first stories of how just, no, that's just family. Like, that's how... Sin busts up the family, and, and we often think that real joy can come from that. But notice in our culture, those are two things no one will question. But I want you to think about that in light of the disciples of Jesus Christ, who the first two things Jesus called them to lay down when he said, 
drop your nets and come and follow me, were to give up their family heritage and job and their way of making money and a career. And those first disciples did that, and for them it was worth it. So don't overlook the significance of living somewhere on purpose. And 11 different times, it just draw, they just lived there. They just lived there, right? They just lived there on purpose for God's glory. Here's the second thing. Not only did they just live there on purpose, it says that they worked there. Now, it only shows up four times here, um, but beginning in verse 12, you'll see that it, it shows that they had a job to do for God's glory. They had something to accomplish that would, that would, in many ways, serve and benefit and rebuild and restore God's purpose in that city. Don't overlook the, the significance of your faithfulness in a job, right? In the way you work, you probably, in ways you don't even realize, you're testifying to God's grace in the world. And I mean, I'm even in the most corrupt profession, underneath it is something that points to the nature of God. Right? So some of you are in finance, right? And you work for something that wants to, you know, you work for some sort of business that protects money and provides safety and security. That's awesome. Do you know who invented security? Do you know who invented safety? Right? Have you ever thought about where that came from? God did. So friend, like, count that money or whatever, invest in whatever. Do it in such a way that testifies to the God who invented safety, security, wealth, and prosperity. Even the most corrupt, even the most awful and dehumanizing parts of an economy point to something. They're broken ways of getting it. Even something like prostitution that dehumanizes and uses people is built on the pursuit of pleasure. It's built on the pursuit of not being alone, feeling human touch. And I would even say in that corrupt place, do you know who invented that? So when you start to see your work as ultimately just a small picture of what God provides, then it changes everything. It changes how you do your work. It changes what job you do. You think, hey, this doesn't rightly reflect God. Pick a job that does. And don't underestimate that a renewed people does this well because they understand that their work of repair and renewal and whatever, whatever service or good you provide to our city is in many ways like a little hint at what God wants to give our city in Jesus Christ. They worked there. Here's the third thing. They served there. Eight different times you see this phrase that they're servants or they served, beginning in even verse 16, or excuse me, verse 3 and then verse 16. They served. These people served God's people. Don't, oh, don't begin to overlook or, or kind of minimize what it means to actually love and care for people around you. Look, many of you are here in this room because someone reached out to you, encouraged you, or offered some sort of favor or kindness or hospitality when you really needed it. And that's what these people, renewed by God's grace, were doing there. Here's the fourth thing. It says that they gave thanks and prayed. Seven different times that phrase shows up, to give thanks. They prayed there. They were thankful there. Same question. Are you a thankful presence in your neighborhood, in your community, in a school or homeschool? Or, right? Do you occupy that place with a lot of entitlement? I've earned this. I deserve this. Or do you occupy that space with gratitude? Renewed people pray and give thanks. Six times, you see, here's the next one, they keep watch or oversee. You hear that phrase, that, that title of overseer beginning in verse 19 and even in chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 11, verse 9 as well. Like this, this framing of people who are overseers who oversee and people who keep watch. At the gates, quite literally, they're keeping watch there. And so, friend, do you have people you look after? Do you have people you care for? Don't underestimate the significance of being in a place intentionally caring and keeping watch over people. The last thing, this is incredibly significant, it's ten times throughout the entire two chapters there, they sang there. They were singing. Now this is a weird one, right? Uh, we sing when we gather together. And I, I don't ever want to like minimize that it's, I don't ever want to try to like, no, it's totally not weird. It's definitely weird. 
right? In, in general, singing is reserved for like special things, right? Either specially gifted, talented people uh, or special occasions like a birthday or things like soccer matches, right? And there it seems normal, right? It's that just, you know, some sporting event. But notice each of those is kind of an expression of adoration. It's an expression of its significance. So please don't minimize this. And I even would say this, like, look, just notice, just I, I want to draw this, your attention to this whenever I can. Movements of renewal are led by men singing. It's not that women don't. I think women, you're just better at it, right? You just, you're more natural at it. We're, I mean, it's some, somewhere along the line between the Bible and now, we're like, oh, no, singing is not for men. It, except for in the Bible, you're right, right? And so in that sense, like, friend, you want to experience renewal? I'm speaking to all of you, but even especially to the men, sing. You want to live in such a way that people are confounded and wonder what on earth like must be moving you? Sing. Try to sing on pitch, but if you're not, make a, make a joyful noise, right? Sing. And after all, if you're only singing because you sound good, then stop singing because you're singing for your glory. But when you sing for God's glory, you're a part of, you, you embody in some way a movement of renewal. I believe, I believe as we gather on Sundays, we've, we've worked really hard to create this culture, right, where we want to sing. It's hard. It's hard to maintain, but I want to commend you. We do this. Imagine now, imagine now, did you, did you, hear, the, did you hear the language of singing in, at the end of that chapter? It says, or at the end of the rejoicing section in, in chapter 12, it just says that their joy was heard from far away. But on the list, 10 different times, it says that people sing. Music has a way to get to our heart and soul in such a way that other things don't. Maybe that's probably why you avoid singing. But just look at this list. They're not incredibly remarkable things. People who just lived where they lived, they worked, they served, they prayed, they watched over, and they sang. This is the list of people God uses to bring renewal. Let me give you a few examples before we move on to, onto, the, onto the last section of, of dedication. I'm going to give you some names of people you've never heard of. Mr. Criswell sent me out into the hall more than anyone has ever been sent out into any hall, frankly. And that may be because I deserve to be sent out in the hall. Mr. Criswell demonstrated in the way that he worked and served. He watched over me, prayed for me. He sent me, like sent me out. Because I would finish my work and I just wanted to talk. Or I wanted to tell people, hey, this is what awesome thing's going on right now, right? And here's the cool thing. Mr. Quizwell, instead of like squelching that, crushing that, in some super, like, supernatural Holy Spirit inspired where he knew that every week I'd stand up and talk to people and try to inspire them about stuff I'm, right, that, that I care about. Yeah. Instead of like squelching it, he came out of the hall. He says like, hey, there's a time and place for this. I know you, and, and he, he would encourage me, I know you're going to get a chance to, to tell people about things that matter. You've never heard of him. And yet, I, I remember the ways that he was present. He took his job seriously. He served. He prayed for. And he watched over me. Joe McFerrin, a deacon, invested in a bunch of teenage boys as a Sunday school teacher. A pretty successful farmer but even during harvest, when all the other farmers were out harvesting, he would take off time. He was really, it was really wisdom about Sabbath. He would just say it like, look, if two, if two, hours, of your, if two hours of your week will sink your farm, you're a bad farmer. And I was like, and he was the most successful farmer I knew. It was pretty profound, right? And he, he would just, we're all going to stop. And uh, he took a bunch of teenage boys to a, a college football game, a bowl game, just to spend time with them. He would bring monkey bread for everything. Amen. Yeah, amen. Amen. I'm, I'm right with you. That's not in there. That's got to that's that's count on or served, right, or watched out for. Everyone needs to be watched out for with a little bit of monkey bread. You'll never hear of him, but he prayed for me. We sang together. He watched over me. Tommy Applewhite, another deacon, taught me how to drive a tractor, taught me how to check cows, uh, check wells at 4 o'clock in the morning, and spent time with a punk teenager Billy Barber, a pastor who let me punch him in the stomach, and instead of punching me back, saw something in me, cared about me, prayed for me. We sang together. He served me, took his job seriously. He was present on purpose. Jan Newberry, 
tag, I got to tag along with her. You've never heard of her. got to tag along with her to, uh, uh, to every possible um, garage sale or rummage sale in like a 50-mile radius of where we lived. And that was a lot, right? Even like, and like the garage sales that don't even make it to the paper, like just like, this is a garage sale. You pull up, I don't think, okay, right? And she just brought me along to spend time with me, to care for me, to be patient with me. We sang together too. Kathy Adams. Kathy Adams, a woman who cared for me. When we, when we, sorry, I didn't, this still means a lot to me. When we first planted, started doing outreach events, she came up, knock on doors to introduce people to Jesus in our city. She made it. Sorry, I didn't. I underestimated the significance of this list. Uh, you've never heard of her. But God has shown me so much grace through these people who lived where they lived on purpose. They served, they worked, they cared, they prayed, they oversaw, they watched over me, cared for me, and I needed a lot of it. And they sang with me. I want you to realize most of the lists of the people who will make a profound impact of renewal in your life and mine will never be famous, they'll never be known. Maybe some famous people will change your life. Praise God. That's, you know, maybe a book written or something said will change. Someone significant might make an impact. But these lists ultimately remind us of something profound. These lists remind us that people matter to God. I'm going to give you the conclusion of this in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 72, and when they return, it says they return with joy. And here was the source of their joy. Their joy was that, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Did you hear that? They were like, I'm, I'm a big deal, right? I'm a significant person. And Jesus rebukes them. He's like, look, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But this is a powerful word from Jesus. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't be tempted to think that the lists that matter the most are the A-lists, and they empty out of limousines onto red carpets. The, the lists that matter the most in eternity are lists like this of names you don't know and can't pronounce. And yet they're the ones that give us joy and hope. Don't be tempted like the disciples to rejoice in some sort of our own significance, but rejoice that we are known by God. And when all those other na names have passed on, we will still be known by and experience the presence of God. These lists remind us that people matter to God and that the things that God does and the people that God uses are not what you think. And real renewal, in many ways, means rejecting those things. So here's the last part. Beginning in, you'll see in verse 27, a picture of dedication. These people have lived out this public commitment, and then here's what they do in dedication. So think of it this way. The renewal results in dedication. Well, what does that mean exactly? Dedication through praise, rejoicing, sacrifice, generous ministry, and holiness. They're all there. There's a long list of what renewal begins to look like, and we're invited to consider how we might experience those things in our own lives. It says the dedication of the wall in verse 27, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres, and then and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem from the villages of the Netaphathites. So get this, there's a picture of rejoicing that leads to them dedicating or committing, in many ways consecrating, setting aside for some divine purpose, a time and place, an event. And there were two groups of people. Did you catch that? They split into half. Half of them went to rejoice and celebrate over there on the south side of the wall, and the other half rejoiced on the north side. Now, for the significance of that, you might have to roll back. Do you remember the threats, the jokes that were made against the Israelites as they were working with a essentially like with a tool in one hand and a, and a sword in the other. Do you remember what they were saying? Like, are these people going to rebuild these walls? Are they going to sacrifice here? Are they going to worship God here? And remember they said, like, a fox could jump on that wall and knock it down. And what did they do as a way of kind of like defiance in light of God's grace? They just get up on the wall. They're like, hey, we're going to march around on this thing. And we're going to do all the things that people were taunting us uh, that we wouldn't do. And so they begin to worship. Now, let me, let me, Frame that out for just a moment as, we, as you think about how worship is outlined here. Worship is a concept that 
that's incredibly important for us to think about and, and for us to experience. And I at least want two different ways that we think about worship. Worship, first and foremost, is a posture of adoration. It's a posture of adoration. You have a worshipful posture, right, towards something. We find that the New Testament even tells us that this is how we were created to exist, that God made us for worship. We are objects, like we are, we are objects that are driven by desire. We, we love to love things, right? Uh, I love how the, the beauty of, of St. Augustine kind of says it this way. It's like we, we often think we're, we're thinking things, but in fact, we're not really thinking things. All the decisions you've made, you probably didn't make because you thought them through. Maybe you sort of did, but you made those decisions because of what you love. And so if I told you, hey, be thoughtless today, you probably could do it. But if I told you, don't love anything today, right? Don't long for anything. Don't desire anything today. You can't do it. You can't turn off your desires. The minute you wake up, you desire what? Some sort of food, coffee, right? You desire pleasure. You desire comfort. You desire, at any given moment, you desire something. You can't turn it off. And that thing that we desire is actually a picture of how God's created us to desire, depend upon, and commune with him. We are objects. We've created as objects that give worship to our creator, and the whole story of the Bible is how we desire and worship and adore things that just don't deserve the glory that God deserves. So these people worshiped in a posture of adoration. But as a second way of thinking, they gathered together to express it in some way. So if you think of worship as a noun and a verb, right? Uh, quite literally from the old, from, from, you know, from the old English, it's worth Skype. That is that you're ascribing worth. That which you worship, you're just simply saying it's worthy. And it happens all the time. C.S. Lewis paints this picture. Like, in fact, real worship has to be expressed, right? Like that, those grandkids, you, ha- you can't not show people pictures of those kids, right? Like that new car, you can't not tell people about it. You're like, don't try it, don't say it, don't, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Yeah, right? right? That thing on your resume you're really proud of, you, you can't not tell anyone, right? You, you have to, the thing you worship, you can't shut up about. Now, here's the thing. The problem isn't that you can't shut up about it. The problem is that you probably just worship things lesser than God the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. And so these two kind of pictures are, are here, a posture of worship and the act of worshiping. And what do they do in worship? What does it look like? It's a dedication, a giving, a sacrifice, a singing, a scribing of praise, of being generous, of serving and ministering. They're all there. And this is a picture of what a faith community ought to look like as it worships. But think of that that, that kind of twofold part of worship. Worship as as it's pictured when we gather. And then there's worship, a posture of praise and adoration when we scatter. Now, this is important because it gives us a picture of what worship looks like when they gather, but that's because it just gave us a picture. Did you hear the list of what worship looks like when they were scattered? Now, make no mistake about it. If you worship when gathered, if, if you sing a lot here, you, you op, you know, we were invited every single Sunday to adopt a posture of praise. And if you do that a lot here, praise God. I hope it like sets you into motion into the world. But do you know what you call a person who, uh, who occupies a posture of praise here when we're gathered and singing and someone who doesn't occupy a posture of praise in where they live, work, serve, right? I call them hypocrites. Because what we really worship isn't just what we get together to sing about. It's what we give and dedicate our lives to. And renewed people start to experience an overlap of singing and gathering and praising and rejoicing. I love, what a, I, I love that phrase in there. They, they got together to rejoice, verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices, right? You hear that, that giving and sacrificing, this is why we do what we do. And then they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. I love that, like, Rejoice with great joy. And so there's like another kind, right? Like we were rejoicing. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. No, 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 no. You don't understand. We rejoiced with great joy. Oh, I thought you just rejoiced. Like you get the, it's like this, it's as if we're sort of see here. No, we rejoice. We're, we're celebrating God's kindness to us. Now, here's the beauty of this. It wasn't because things were perfect. It wasn't because their circumstances were great. It was because God was faithful. And that's so important because many of us on a Sunday when we gather here, we worship Jesus through tears. We sing through tears. I know some of you have joined me in that. We sing through tears. 
Not because our life's perfect, it absolutely is not. And like these people who are still living under the Persian rule, we still live in a corrupt and broken world marred by sin. And yet, that's not what we sing. That's not why we rejoice with great joy. We rejoice with great joy because that is coming to an end. There is a king who is coming and he will take the throne and he is a good king. and He will make all things new. All that is broken he will repair. So, did you hear the components of worship? Their public dedication included singing. I already said this once, but say it again. We sing. Don't underestimate the power of what singing does in you and communicates to the world. They gathered together and they made great sacrifices. They spread out. They deployed, right? Think of this as what it looks like to be a gospel community in our city or to be churches, planting churches in our region and around the world. We're saying, hey, you go to the north, you go to the south. You go singing, praising, serving, loving God that way, and we'll go this way. And you saw Ezra went one way, and he and the rest of them went to another, to these gates, right? The fish gate, the dung gate. That's a rough neighborhood, right? hey, you go, you go serve and love Jesus in, around the dung gate. Okay, right? The women and children, they all rejoiced. And their rejoicing, it says at the very end of verse 43, was a joy declared that was heard from Jerusalem far away. There's this picture of worship that includes experiencing powerful renewal. Here's what I want to conclude for you. Because of Jesus... We are counted, like on a list, among those who rejoice. Because of Jesus. Did you hear the, in verse 44 and then verse 1, it said, on that day. It gave kind of a picture. And it gave a picture of something we've already talked about multiple times, but Nehemiah is like, I want to make sure you get this. It's about what? It's about generosity, tithing, right? Giving. It was tithing people at the very beginning, and then they were, they were, they were collecting tithes for ministry. I just... One more side note, I said it again, I said it last week, I'll say it again. Don't over-spiritualize the word tithe, it just means tenth, it's a mathematical term. And in fact, be, be wary of anyone who uses that, you should ask them. If somebody go, I tithe, you should say like, which tithe? Uh, the Old Testament describes three tithes, or in fact, three tithes, you're, you're meant to give generously three-tenths, right? To, to the ministry, to, to the sacrifices, and to the poor. Like, we're meant to minister to people, and so this is a picture of generosity, again, but this ministry of generosity, they equip them to do all the things that we described, right? Work, live, serve, lead us in singing, lead us in sacrificing. And then it says in verse 1, they read from the book of Moses. And then it says that they began to set themselves apart. And in the place where there was meant to be cursing, they started to experience holiness, separating, quite literally set apart for God's purpose in the world. And renewal includes just that. Not just being counted among those who have a holy purpose by God's grace, but as those who can rejoice in it. And it changes the way they live. I'll give you two pictures of this. The first comes, remember how this is a second exodus that points to something bigger? Numbers chapter 19 gives us a picture of the first exodus and the customs of these people who were being led into the promised land. It says, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel, for it is a sin offering. So did you hear that, that verse where it says that the priests started to consecrate themselves, purify themselves, and then they purified the wall and they purified the people? Did you hear that? It's like they started to give sacrifices by the shedding of blood and atoning of sin. They were made pure and set apart for a holy purpose. Well, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that that was simply a picture of what was to come. How much more will then the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you remember when I told you how like the things you do in obscurity, they don't seem like a big deal? Right? They, don't, they don't seem like a, a huge deal, but notice it says here that they actually are are an evidence that we have been changed. We've been purified and made right. I love, the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 6 that you need to keep serving, keep loving, because God, who is faithful, doesn't forget. He remembers those who have served and loved him. So, friend, look at this. Jesus is the fulfillment of this celebration of dedication. We are then counted because of Christ, because he has taken our place 
living a perfect life we could not live, dying a death, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved, and then vindicated in resurrection on the third day so that we would be counted among those who are known by God in eternity. And that is our cause for rejoicing. We can dedicate our lives to work and faithful presence, right? We don't have to run. You don't have to always be, you know, you don't have to be driven by wanderlust. You can just say, I'm here. I'm faithful. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. Because even though it may not seem like a big deal, these are the names that are known by God in eternity. Friend, you and I are invited to rejoice because Jesus, who has counted now us, not amongst the sinners, but among the saved, those made righteous and holy by his perfect blood, And then we're invited to rejoice, live lives of public and private rejoicing. Rejoicing that is heard and known and remembered by God. I think in this room, you might find yourself in one of a few places. One is this just sounds too good to be true, that God would know me and God would have a divine purpose for me. I want to encourage you. Would you begin to contemplate the mystery? That God in his infinite mercy and grace loves you so much he sent his son to demonstrate his care and concern for you so that you would know even on the deepest, darkest, most awful day, you are not forgotten. Because of Christ, you are counted among those who are known and remembered by God. But maybe for the rest of us, it's just simply that that hasn't led to much rejoicing. We worship and dedicate our lives to other things. Well, friend, This is the moment we're called back to renewal. We're called back away from those lesser things. We're called back to the place, right? The the places that were broken, the walls that couldn't hold a fox, are now the places where we celebrate God's mercy and renewal. And for you, maybe this morning, it's to turn away from the things that you know can't give you hope, that you know can't give you joy. They're, They're strangling you. Turn from those things. And those places that couldn't hold a fox, join in with the redeemed and sing for joy. And the place that once was broken has, by God's grace, been restored. Let's pray and respond this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and merciful and kind to us. We thank you that you give to us the things we need even before we know that we need them. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left as the city in the time of Ezra and Jeremiah, your people in disrepair. You have not left them to to be destroyed, but instead you worked miraculous means to bring out of the ashes something beautiful and full of life. Thank you for this work of renewal we get to see in Ezra and Nehemiah. Lord, thank you even more that the kind of renewal that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is just a picture. It's just a glimmer of the great hope and renewal and restoration that you have come to bring us in Christ. Today, would you give us the gift of faith to see that with eyes of faith and to receive that with a heart of faith, to know that we are made new and restored and made right. We are remembered and recalled and loved by God because of Christ. And even in the darkest days, we can say to the enemy, I know I am loved, and we point to the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, now restore our hearts, renew the places where we are without hope, help us to sing through our tears, help us to sing and rejoice that The brokenness of the world does not get the last word, but instead we are now called and set aside for a holy purpose, a purpose of enjoying your presence and blessing forever and ever. Thank you that this is a gift we receive in Jesus' name. Amen.